talked about Hebrews 10, we gave the background that Hebrews is divided into two halves, basically chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 10, verse 18, through verse 10, 19, through the end of the chapter, the second half, and it really, those two parts are distinct because chapter 10, verse 19 says, therefore, brothers, since you have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by you admitting way open for us through the veil that is his body, that passage tells us that when it begins with the therefore, that the whole first half is explaining why we have this opportunity that he's affording us. It's an amazing truth. So, so when, by the time we get to verse 19 of chapter 10, he's giving us radical thought to Jewish people who have converted to Christianity. These are first-generation believers who walked away. They were, these were not the Gentiles that Peter's had gone to read. And then the Paul reached, these were Jewish people, probably centered mostly in Jerusalem, and they had come to Christ. And uh, he uses this example of the temple, and he says that, that we have this confidence to enter behind the veil into the Holy of Holies. And we told you last night that would be an outlandish thought to, to the Jewish mindset, to think that you could do that with knowing that that without hearing permanently, then only the high priest, no one else would ever enter there. There was more than just legend. There was history of people who mistreated the Ark of the Covenant and were struck dead. And uh, it, was, it was representative of a power. And it was this, where the glory of God seated the, the old the Hebrew word, the kabod, the, the glory, the presence of God rested there in that place. Last night we talked about the fact that the high priest, once a year, carried the blood sacrifice as a two sacrifice, his own and that of people. And once a year he would carry that blood sacrifice back there. But it's interesting because the Jewish people knew there was only one way that they knew for sure that God had accepted the offering of the high priest. And the proof that God had accepted the high priest's offering when he went behind the veil is that he came back out alive. And that's what our great high priest did. Isn't that awesome? Oh, this, I'm going to just, just, this, this passage is just alive. It's so amazing. The truth that just flows from it. And so we have this high priest who's unlike any other. He carried his own blood. So remember last time we said that Jesus was the high priest of the order of Melchizedek, and Jesus was the sacrifice, the perfect lamb, and Jesus' blood was what was carried behind the veil, but Jesus was the high priest that carried his own blood through the veil with the veil that was rent is his body. 
So we come through the body. It's all about Jesus. And He carries that to the throne of God. And God accepted His perfect offering for our sins, for yours and for mine. And Jesus rose from the dead and came back to say, The Father accepted me. Don't go back to that God did all this. Not so you get a get out of hell free card. He did all this because He wants you to go away from Him. He wants you to be holy. I'm not careful with that. God does not want you to be holier than God. He doesn't want you to be arrogant. He doesn't want you to. This is never about you comparing. In fact, you can't. Because you, you can't compare yourself to other people. It's really the kingdom is so upside down. It's just, it, it's so backwards. It's so counterintuitive to the way we think about all these things. Because in God's kingdom, the God who, the God who thinks he has power and authority is the weak. The God who thinks and Jesus was constantly bantering with the Pharisees because they thought they were protecting the kingdom. And Jesus was saying, you don't understand what the kingdom is because this is by your rules and regulations. You aren't protecting it. In your arrogance of thinking, you somehow earn something with me because it's only the humble. That's what we read. That's what Pastor Mark just read to us out of Isaiah. See, what I'm telling you is that when you press behind the veil to the Holy of Holies, when you say, I'm going to press to the heart of God for His holiness, here's what happens. You have that, woe is me, for I am a man of unseen lips experience. You have that moment where there is no arrogance. You are broken. I can tell you right now that unbroken people are people who haven't pressed behind the veil to be before God yet. Because He will crush you. Not crush you, but destroy you. This is a, it's almost an oxymoron. Because here's what happens. To enter this relationship of holiness, to enter this relationship of the power and the purity that God has, He will make you stronger than you've ever known. He will make you more confident in your walk with Him than you've ever known. But you'll never know the confidence and the power and the strength until you have looked in the face of God and said, I am absolutely nothing. I bring, look, I don't bring anything to the table. God's not lucky to have me. And I have nothing but praise that He ever accepts. My whole world is So let's talk about this place of power. First of all, when we say, I don't, I don't want to be a dead horse, but it's just, I love to think about this. I want, I want to be really careful because I use this, this visual as the, as the Hebrew writer did. I use this visual of the temple. That's what he, he wanted to evoke in the minds of the Jewish people, the, the Jewish believers that were reading. He wanted to evoke in them this visual 
of this temple or this tabernacle. He wanted them to think that God is calling you to move from the place of your salvation and crash behind the veil to the Holy of Holies. And he wants you to do this with a confidence that says, I know, listen to me, you need to hear this, I know that God wants you to. We'll talk about that more in just a minute. I'm telling you, God wants you there. But I want us to be really careful because this is not physical experience. It is a metaphysical, it is a spiritual experience. He's saying to you, I am calling you to a spiritual relationship that was foreshadowed in the physical realm of the tabernacle and the temple. But what I am calling to you, calling you to, transcends all the physical realm. That's going to give you an image to follow. But I'm asking you to do something. I'm calling you. I'm commanding you. I'm prompting you to something that happens in the realm of the Spirit. So this is, this is a point that the Hebrew writer has been trying to make. Go back to chapter 8 with me, if you would. Hebrews chapter 8. I'll just start in verse 1. You can kind of catch up. Now, the main point of what we're saying is this. We do have such a great high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Verse 2. Ready? And who served in the sanctuary. The true, you hearing this? The true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by mere human beings. Okay? Drop down to verse 5. And they serve, talking about the priest, they serve in a sanctuary that is a, this is, this is radical, that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. And that's why, this, I love this explanation. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Why was it so critical that Moses get everything correct about the measurements and the layout of the tabernacle? Because this is, this is stuff that I just, I don't know what to do with this. I don't know how to, Gordon, someday I'm going to get to go to heaven and see what happens here. But what this tells me is that in the realm of the Spirit, in the dimension that we don't see because of this veil of flesh, there is a true tabernacle, a true place that is the dwelling place of God where He is seated on the throne. Keep going with me. Jump over to chapter 9. There's something. We'll come back to chapter 9, verse 1. But go to verse 11. But when Christ came as the high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That's not to say it's not a part of this creation. That is to say it is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by the means of blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood thus obtaining eternal redemption. Wow. Are you hearing this? See, this is exciting stuff. 
it says that Jesus, so here's what it tells us. There is this connection between the earthly tabernacle temple and the one in heaven, and the, the connection is that this one is a copy. And when something happens in the in the spiritual eternal tabernacle, when Jesus broke through the veil and took the offering to the throne of God the, in the temple in Jerusalem in that very hour, the veil of the temple was rent from top to bottom. He said, I showed you in the physical realm something that was really literally happening in the spiritual realm. I have this fascination. I don't want it to become an obsession, but it is a fascination that I can't let go of of trying to understand what what this kingdom of God is like that we can't see with our eyes. Because it's amazing. And here's what I There's some things I do know. I know that the vast majority of it we will not get to see until we are translated into our spiritual body. That the Word of God comes the veil of this flesh when we go to heaven, when we leave this earth, we'll get to see and understand what it is. I don't know yet. I don't quite fully understand whether we're going to see all of it when we die or if it's after the judgment. I, I don't, I, I'm, not, I'm not an expert on all that. But all I know is the Bible says to be out of body to see the presence of Christ. That's good enough for me for right now. But I still believe there's stuff about this unseen kingdom that God wants us to know now. That's why, that's why, I, I don't remember when I talked to you guys about this, but, and maybe I have it. Here's my problem. I just had a thinking a few years ago. Here's my problem. I'm in the last weeks of my fall tour, and, I, and I've been sharing these messages in a lot of the places I've been. <laughs> And I forget about midweek whether I said it to you guys yet or not. <laughs> Last week, somewhere else. <laughs> but, um, but this. Did I take you back to Second Kings? I may have mentioned yesterday. Back to Second Kings about that there are more that are for us than are against us. Did I talk to you guys about that? Did I? Okay, all right. So that that picture back with Elijah. That's right. With Elijah and his servant, and Elijah. A uh, servant says, Oh, my Lord, what are we going to do? And Elijah says, Let him open his eyes that he might see that there are more than four of us that are against us. If you go to, you know, if you go to Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul begins to pray for us. And Paul says, I am praying that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened. That you'll see what I'm doing. He says, I am praying that God will give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation. I just, I, Paul is saying, God, I want you to help people to see that this, this life is not about this life, it is about your kingdom. And your, Jesus spent his whole ministry trying to explain to us what his kingdom was like. The book of Matthew is about Jesus trying to help us can you imagine what that was like for Jesus? I can't fathom leaving the realm of glory, being the one who created the universe, who spoke into existence 
right down to the most minute details, who knows everything about everything that ever existed, cramming that into a human body, and then trying to find literal words to explain the unexplainable to people who have finite understanding versus his infinite I don't think it frustrated Jesus. I think he knew exactly how to do it. But I think he has to pay really careful attention to how he did That's why he told this parable. That's why he kept saying the kingdom of heaven is life. The kingdom of heaven is this. Let's be, let's be, I, I want us to say, I want to know the kingdom. I want to know what it's about. I want to know what it means to be that the first will be last and the last will be first. I want to know what it means when Jesus says, my Father that's in heaven, you are holy, hallowed, holy and reverenced is your name. And I want your kingdom to come and your perfect will be done in this fleshly realm, just like it's always being done behind the veil of the flesh in the, in the spiritual realm. I have Jesus says, Jesus wasn't praying that for himself. He said, that's how you need to pray. You need to pray for the kingdom to come to bear in this physical existence that we have. So, this is why you hang right now. Because what I want you to understand is that we are called to a heavenly realm that we'll understand fully after we leave this earth. But it is for our best in the here and now. This isn't about some dying grace. This is about us living in the here and now, in the presence, in the in the kavad or the the dog, the, the glory of God. So <laughs> I had this friend. I was just pastor years ago, and he he's a little older than me, but he called the ministry while I was a pastor. And uh, he went to Indiana Western University and pastored a church while he was down there. And, and he's one of the most brilliant guys I've ever met. He just—he is a—he is a scholar, scholar. He knows. He lives. I call his house. He lives in North Carolina, so I down there. I always go to see Mark, and I got time to meet him. I'll stay all night with him. And uh, he and I have these incredibly. I just wake up. I just. People list this stuff when I see Mark. This is the stuff when I ask him about things. So, yeah, all the Marks I know are smart. What's that about? And, and uh, so, he and I are having dinner. And I said, uh, I'm going to talk about the Ark of the Covenant in the service. And he said, Ah, the Ark of the Covenant. He said, uh, Where do you think the Ark of the Covenant is? Oh, I already know. Cool, He said, you do? I said, yeah. He said, I do too. I said, well, you go first. Where is it? And he has this whole explanation. And he, he, unlike me, he can take you to the last place in the scripture that the ark is, ark is mentioned. And uh, I think he's going to tell me something about it buried on the temple mount or something. He said, no, I believe. He just said this. He said, I believe that God took the ark to heaven. And I'm about coming to do that because he's always right. 
<laughs> he knows it. <laughs> and he's humble too. Okay. No way, man. No way. No way. He's like, yes, it is. No, it's not. He said, well, then where is it? I said, well, first of all, I can tell you why it's not in heaven. Well, why is it in heaven? I said, because see, what chapter 9 tells me that everything that was in the temple on earth and the tabernacle on earth are copies of what is already in heaven. Why would Jesus take a, a God take a cheap imitation up to heaven when he has the real deal up there? He didn't need it. Well, where do you think it is? So, did you watch Indiana Jones? <laughs> Works for me. <laughs> Someday we will get to witness for ourselves in the kingdom. This is this this place that is the throne room of God. And he's well, watch. The reason I deal with this is because chapter ten, verse nineteen of Hebrews says that's not for later. That's for now. Says our entrance into the holy of holies is now. It is for us by the blood of Jesus to enter into this relationship of intimacy, where the Spirit of God pours out His power and His glory in our lives. We experience the glorious presence of God. So I think, then, well, what? What does that do? You know, we we talk about holiness, and holiness holiness in my upbringing became more about what you don't do than what you do. It almost became about what we were against more than what we were for. Uh, probably not in Bay City, but over in Alma, where I grew up. I had a friend remind me of this. Leonard Sweet, in one of his writings, but he came out of the Pilgrim Holiness movement. Leonard Sweet called the Pilgrim Holy, the old Pilgrim Holiness Church, he called them the Bulldogs of the Holiness Movement. The Pitbull, the Pitbull of the Holiness Movement. I like What a heritage. <laughs> Did you grow up with a bunch of. See, maybe you don't have any baggage, but I grew up with baggage. I told you yesterday that I grew up ashamed of my heritage. We were weird. Who else ever read or listen to get Harrison Peeler and Trail on the page? Harrison Peeler does this whole thing about how his family, uh, not him, it's a story he tells in one of his books, The Lake Wolverine. He tells about how they went to the church of the something holy brethren or something, sanctified brethren, and how the fellows were split up in the sanctified brethren and they went off to some other town. There's all his family. And so his family made this rare trip on a Sunday to go to church to this other church. And they, but because they did that, they had to eat in a restaurant. And they go into this restaurant, and they, they just get set down, and his mother looks over and 
discovers that they serve alcohol, and she makes the family get up and leave the restaurant. And they go to another restaurant, and they finally get ready to eat, and then their dad makes them all bow their heads, but he had this long prayer in the restaurant. And, 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 and he ends up if you want to be mad at him for being so brutally honest, but he ends it like this. He says, why do we always have to be so weird? Now look, you may think I'd be disrespectful. And I understand that. I can tell you that I could come to tears and a snap of the finger about the godly heritage that I knew in my heart. But I find it fascinating the things that I grew up fearful that I'd go to heaven. But I'm not sure God even has a good excuse. I can remember having to have a family meeting and a huge debate because my fifth grade class was going to go bowling. You're not making a connection, are you? <laughs> He's over here going, you what? <laughs> yeah, but see, here's the deal. Don't think that they would do cobblestone. And they turned a ball on in the ceiling with lights going around. I bow to you. I can still feel the condemnation as though I were going to go to hell when that thing came out. I remember having to get a note to be excused in gym class from Elementary. Thank you, Mark. See? I wanted that note, by the way. I just really did. I, I, I used, I used it. <laughs> I'm not here to judge all that stuff, but I'm here to tell you that holiness is being about what we don't do and what we're against more than who God is and what He is doing in our lives. I can tell you that by the time I was a young adolescent, the charismatic movement was rising. I can tell you that the holiness movement, who were getting over their radical ways, it kind of somehow calmed those people down that used to shout and run the aisles and embarrass us. And then those crazy charismatics start doing that stuff. And so we had to see them down. This is in my notes, but we'll have time to read it later. But I want to make this point because it's so clear. Look, I'm not here to condone anything, but I am here to say I think a lot of our disposition, negative disposition towards the charismatic movement was was never biblical. It was just they were expressing what we used to be and we were ashamed of it. I can tell you that there were, I had a a cassette tape that I listened to multiple times. I have to be careful what I say. It was a holiness church in the Tri-City region some 35 years ago, or 30-some years ago, that had a, a speaker that explained how he had created a test to prove that anybody that spoke in tongues was demon possessed. See, it, I 
can tell you right now that there are people in our holiness churches that to this day would like to think that. You know why? Because our churches were divided all over the place. We have churches to this day in this district that sit virtually empty because people had it. It was like a vacuum sucking the life out of the church because somebody started speaking in tongues and took two-thirds of the church with them and started another church someplace. And so we were wounded, we were angry, and we reacted to that stuff. Because how are you handling that? Because this is what I'm telling you. When we start doing that, instead of saying, I'm not here to decide whether that stuff is I think it was false on both sides. I don't know if we get going to a conference down here in Indiana, and Jack Hayford, John Maxwell brought Jack Hayford, a certified guide-in-the-world Pentecostal charismatic, in to speak to us. I thought I was going to die that day. And Jack Hayford, were you there? Jack Hayford stood up and apologized to the Wesleyan Church. And here was his apology. He said, I am so sorry for the ridiculous behavior of some of the people from my tradition. Because in reaction, they have robbed you of your church life. We all hear? See, our birthright is holy. Not a doctrine. It's experience and the power and the glory of God. I have a friend who did research on John, um, John Wesley. John Wesley had a problem. I don't know if you know about this. A friend got his doctorate. He was a Nazarene pastor down in uh, Columbus, Ohio. Got his doctorate in revival preaching. John Wesley had a problem because he prayed for people and they fall over. Flame in the spirit. They, they, they call it falling out. And he, he, he didn't know what to do with that. I'm not here to promote manifestation. I can tell you right now, God is God, and God will manifest the way He wants to manifest. But our problem has been, we've let God know He better not do it certain ways because He'll embarrass us. So why are you handling that? Because I'm telling you right now that to press behind the veil, we go with no preconceived tradition. We go in and say, God, I want you on my life. I want you to flow with me. And then you want to let it Jesus says, when we press to this place of the filling of the Holy Spirit, see, I believe the upper room was symbolic of this whole thing. And Jesus said, when you go to that upper room, you press for the heart of God. He, he said, Jesus said, don't come back out of there until you get what was promised to you. Isn't that amazing? Glory. The presence of God. Stuff nobody had seen before and nobody could explain and nobody could experience. And it wasn't over. It was just the beginning. I mean, before this thing is over, there's literally Peter having these freak visions. I mean, this is crazy stuff like a heat descending out of heaven and all kinds of animals on it. And God comes to Peter and says, Here's the deal. The people who you think you are better than, and they're all going to hell, you're going to go tell them about me, and they're going to love Jesus, and I love them as much as I do you. 
in there. I just love this stuff. God says, when you get to the heart of God, your prejudices are torn away. See, I'm troubled. I, I grew, I, and I think we're past it. I praise God we're I think we're past it. I had a good talk. I had a couple of friends, Nazarene guys, who are really leading a revival movement. They are dear brothers of mine. But they're leading a movement in which their lingo is alienating them in the Nazarene movement because people think they're Pentecostal. And, and, and I told those guys, I said, listen, I understand your heart, and I do. They're the real deal. They are powerful men of God. I said, you need to understand, you're speaking in churches that had their hearts ripped out, and there's, some of them had their families torn apart over these issues. And you're walking in like it's no big deal. And it's a big deal to some of our churches. It's still, it's still an open wound. So when I don't talk about these things tonight, I want you to hear me tonight. We're all adults here. And I'm done telling God how He can work and how He can manifest. But I'm reading the Word of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 tells me that when God's really at work, there are manifestations. That's the word used in the Scripture. There are manifestations of the Spirit of God among His people. So if you want to know whether the work of the Spirit's being done, what's God doing? Is, I mean, is there an alive testimony? Is the power of God at work in your life? Are you having influence where you're at? My wife reads a Bible study. It's an amazing Bible study. God just brought five women to her, the disciples. And for over a year now, for a little over a year, every Tuesday night, they've only missed, I think, two Tuesdays in over a year. Every Tuesday night, she takes these ladies into a living room, and she opens the Bible, and they started in Genesis 1, and they're in about Exodus chapter 21 or 2 now. One chapter a week, they study the Word of God. And it doesn't matter because what they're doing is praying and they're being filled with the Holy Spirit and the glory of God is on them. And I'm telling you right now, the one woman's telling about her work. She said, there's a guy that she worked with. He's the meanest, honest, filthiest mouth guy. He would flirt with her. He'd try to seduce her. He'd use foul language around her. And she said, finally, one day after one of our Bible studies, I decided I ought to tell him about Jesus. And she said, he came around to me and she said, I just want you to know I'm praying for you. He didn't know what to do with that. And she, every once in a while, he'd come around again and she'd say, I'm praying for you. And she'd tell him, I said, I'm praying for you. I want you to know I love you. Jesus loves She just testified to this simple stuff. But she was, watch this. She was powerful and effective because she was full of the Holy Spirit. Do you know that two weeks ago, that man came to work glowing on his face and he said, uh, or no, it was a little, about maybe three, three weeks ago. Anyway, he came to her and he said, uh, he said, that's what I did this weekend. That's what I did. And she's like, that's what she did. I said, she said, I couldn't believe you being nice to you. She said, I went to church. She said, you did? He said, that was weird. He said, I went to church. Are you with me? When people pray? He said, everything that man said was not right. I remember the week two weeks later, he came back standing. What's going on? What's going on? Things just won't change. 
she's kind of a little goofy, I'll just say. I, I, can you just love Jesus? My wife's friends, those girls heard it. Listen to this. They heard it. And I got, I got, none of this is in my notes. I told the Lord, I really told him to do this. These ladies began to get a burden for women caught in sex One woman finally, she got up and was walking up. She said, I can't even tell you. I can't hear this. I can't stand it. And she came back and sat down here. They began to pray. And every week they began to pray for women caught in sex abuse. And began to pray against the Spirit. We found out that some of the stuff that's going on in our area, do you know that on a Tuesday night they prayed? And they prayed that anyone that had been in our area that was involved in sex trafficking would be caught and brought to justice. They prayed it specifically, and that week they arrested a man who was caught in the act with of, of uh, trafficking. Somebody he had was uh, he was a child pornographer who had been molesting children, and they caught him that week. I'm telling you, every woman in that group knew that there was an answer to their prayers. They just knew that. And you'd say, well, how do you know? Maybe the police would be like, you call it mean what a coincidence. I believe God works when people's spirits still pray. Amen? I believe miracles happen. I wonder what's not happening that could if we would actually say, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to let go until God does it for me. I'm so, I'm so hungry for God to be with a powerful Over, over the gifts of the Spirit today to say, God, I want it to be a memory. I want the glory of God to flow. I want His power to be healed. I want you to know the power of the Spirit. So, so what happens? Back to chapter 9, verse 1. The word of the standard of this is powerful. Chapter 9, verse 1. I want you to discover something with me. This is all here for a purpose. This is chapter 9, before chapter 10, in case you're not a math student. This is getting us ready for chapter 10, verse 19. So, therefore, brothers and sisters, confidence in our own holy place on the blood of Jesus Christ, we will live in the which is his body. He says, you need to know that this way, you need to know what that is. So go to chapter 9, we start talking about the covenant had regulations for worship, and the first covenant did, and also an earthly sanctuary. It's very specific, it's an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up in the first room with lampstand and tables, consecrated bread, and the table with its, uh, I'm sorry, lampstand and tables, consecrated bread, and this was called the holy place. And behind the curtain was a room called the Most Holy Place. Um, I, I don't want to get into the whole debate, but there's, it says that there was a, a, a table, the altar of incense that was in that room, but historically it was not in the Holy Holies. It was just outside. It was where the priest would have picked up an incense censer to carry with him back behind the veil when he carried the blood. So what, for whatever reason, it's in here this way. I'm not certain. But what you have now is a list of what was behind the veil. It says, uh, with, uh, 
behind the second curtain was a room called the Most Holy Place, which had the golden altar of incense, and, and here we go, the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the Covenant. Above the Ark were the cherubim of the glory overshadowing the atonement cover, but we cannot discuss these things in detail. Now, that verse just bugs the dickens out of me. Why would he, why, whoever the Hebrew writer is, why would he put that in there? But you, we don't have time. I've got all the time in the world. Let's discuss this in detail. Because I think it's important, but we don't get to. But, but what he tells us here is significant. He is enumerating what's back here. Why would he do that? I'm telling you that the, the writer enumerates every detail of this because every part of it is something. It is a foreshadowing in the flesh of what God wants to do in the Spirit, and He wants to do it in you and in me in the here and now. So what He says is this, this, this Ark of the Covenant. This Ark. This, an Ark. It's just a box. It's kind of like a miniature casket. It's just a, a box. box and it had gold on it. It was a really pretty box. The box. symbolic of the heart of man. You need to understand that. It symbolizes the heart of man. There's a lot of things we could talk about there. I just don't have time to explain it. Oh, that's right. I've got that. But it symbolizes the heart of man. That's, that's important to know. This, this box is distinctly separated in the Scripture from its cover. So we're going to talk about the box, and then he talks about the contract. He says, now in the box there were there were three things. There was a gold jar of manna. Now it's sometimes described as a gold jar with manna, and sometimes it's described as a jar with a gold cover that had manna in. I don't really care, and I think that's necessarily consequential, but that's a pretty cool deal because manna was something that you got it one day, and you consumed it that day, and if you didn't, it rotted. It would get maggots. It was gross. You didn't want leftover manna. You could save it for two days for the Sabbath, but that was it. But God told Moses to have Aaron gather some of the manna and put it in his jar, and it would preserve, it would remain Revelation tells us that we need to eat from the manna that lasts. And here's what I'm telling you. The manna was clearly symbolic in the physical realm of what is absolutely true in the spiritual realm. God will absolutely meet every need. That, that message doesn't ring as true here as it would in Africa. Because we're, we're not desperate. Right? I mean, some of you think we are. I sometimes think I am. But it's really not me. What about the stuff that's going to hide behind? God 
says, I shall fight every good fight. According to my glory, And it might not be just this, this, this style you like every time. You may want quail when he's given manna. But he said, I'll supply what you need. Also, I, I need to know that. I need to know. Some of us, by the way, some of you may live in fear. There may be issues here. It might not be about, about money. I can tell you that I had, I mean, maybe I have told you that, but I had to be delivered from fear of finance. Literally. I had to be prayed over, and my heart was set free. I can tell you, my wife and I were delivered from that thing. We, we spent about five years in misery because we didn't know whether we were going to make it from one month to the next. And you know what's bizarre about that? We lived in fear, not trusting what God would promise. But once He delivered us, He let us look back and see, do you realize? I don't think I told you guys this story. Do you realize that we... The whole time we were being tortured by fear, we never were even one day late on anything we owed to anybody. Ever. I mean, this is a person, this is a person who says, I don't know if we're going to make it. I don't know how it's going to happen. I mean, I think I almost had ulcers being concerned because, because there's no security in what I do. There is no financial security in what I do. And I can tell you, I would worry over that thing. Can I tell you, this is, I want you to know this is not bragging. This is a witness to the glory of God. But let me tell you this. And I don't tell very many people, but listen. My wife and I wanted to get into uh, remodeling a house here and there and fixing up and selling it because it was a way of trying to get some money in our retirement. And I uh, had some weeks off. And so we went into the bank to talk to them about borrowing some money. In fact, I told her, I said, we're just going to try because uh, we had, we didn't have two dimes for We had no money. I had no money to give for a dime. I mean, I'm sure they want money for a dime. So we went in and sat down at the bank that day. And uh, she said, well, how much do you want to borrow? And I told her, the amount? She said, okay. I said, looking at it, in front of me, my wife is pretty and she was giving him this stink eye look that's like, okay, what's he talking about? You know? He said, well, what, what, do we, she says, what do we have to do? He said, okay, he says, let me, let me go back and explain this to you like we're children. Like, you're going to write down on a piece of paper an amount of money you want, and I'm going to write a check for you for that amount of money. Is that fair enough? Why? Why? We went through with that deal from the day we went to pick up the check to the state president's secretary, who had been with the bank for years. She's, she's probably, she's about my age, she's kind of young, but she's been with the bank for maybe 30 years, I don't know. And I always said, hey, did, uh, did, did John happen to check our credit or something when he won all the credit? Oh, obviously, he did that before he ever walked in. She said, I wouldn't say this to anybody, but she said, in all the years I've worked at the bank, they've never, I've never, ever seen a secretary that high in my life. I love it. Are you seeing what it, what's this about? 
give up the means if you want faith. God needs you. Now look, I'm not saying you think God's going to magically change your credit score. But I'm telling you, it was a witness to this guy who had lived in fear that God said, I took care of that matter and I'm telling you, I'll provide for your needs and you meet my needs. Amen? You need to stop fearing. But it may not be for money for you. It might be for your health. It might be for your future. It might be about your career. You see, some of you still think you, you still think that somehow the guy that writes signs your check is the person you work for. I don't care who signs your check. You work for God in heaven. Amen. I'm telling you, your job security—you need to be—you need to be a witness in how you work. Amen. If anybody in the world ought to have a good work ethic, that ought to be Christians. Getting the point, the manna, the manna. The manna says, here's what I'm telling you. Well, I'll, I'll just do this in the end. Okay. Tomorrow night we'll finish this. <laughs> Watch this. The manna is the first thing. I'm telling you, God needs our... God needs our, The second thing back there says it's Aaron's rod, right? I love that part. Aaron's rod, except that's not what it says. Because Aaron's rod... Well, the rod represented a person's life. It was really a man would take a rod like a young man. It would be sometimes he was given to him by his father, but he would keep a record of his history, his life on that rod. There would be markings for his marriage, the birth of his children. He, it was it was kind of like a record, a measuring stick of his life. And so a rod. So I'm thinking, well, the rod and the ark meant that Aaron's a man's life is is covered in the ark, but that's not what it says. It says Aaron's rod that budded. Now that's a whole other story. That's numbers chapters what, 15 and 16, 16, 17, right in that area. These, I, these two guys, these, there are these guys who are, here's the bottom line, they're jealous because God appointed Aaron to be the priest. And they're jealous, and so they come into Moses and they're griping about this, and, and they get other people from the other tribes to come with them, and they're going, it's not fair, and who, who made him the priest, and, and who makes you the big boss anyway, Moses? And in the middle of this thing, God just interrupts him, he tells Moses and Aaron to get back to these guys, because I'm just going to kill them right now. Boom! I mean, it's just, it's crazy. What's even crazier is Moses and Aaron fall on their faces before God, and beg God not to kill them. I'm not sure I'd have been that gracious. Using me, but but why? God relents and 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 he's going to kill the whole all the people. And you get those guys together who are doing the complaining and bring them together and their families, and the ground opens up and swallows them, the whole family. I'm sorry, the Bible's gruesome, but makes me nervous when people want to backstab the leader, spiritual leader. I'll just go there. So, so there's this funny line, and it's not funny, it's tragic, but it's just bizarre. It says, the next day, the next thinking day, the people come to him. They come back to Moses less than 24 hours later to gripe about more stuff. And God says, get back, I'm going to kill him. 
And again, Moses and Aaron fall on their faces and beg God not to kill them. And God says, okay, here's the deal. You get the leader, one, one leader from every tribe, and you have them bring their staff. It represents who they are, their ethics. And you get Aaron's staff, and you take those 12 staffs, one from each of the tribes, and you take it behind the, the, the veil in the, in the most holy place of the tabernacle, and you lay those out in front of the altar, in front of the ark of the covenant. And he said, tomorrow, whoever rod has budded, and he would say, six. Whoever's rod has budded is the one I have chosen to be the priest. Well, the next day they go back, and you got 11 dead rods, and You had Aaron's rod that the scripture says didn't just bud, it budded, blossomed, and bore home. It's just like, I choose Aaron! Isn't that amazing? And then God says, Take that staff that budded and put it in my hand. See, see, I think there's some things in the heart of man like about provision. I think there's some complaining spirits and grumbling attitudes that don't that think that life's not fair and we're not being treated is is more than complaining, is criticism and bitterness. There is this thing of saying, I mean, you're understanding that the root of all that is self is sin. God says, put that thing in the ark because I want you to remember that too. And then he says, and by the way, put those tablets, and you remember the ones you got mad and broke and I had to give you new ones? Put those in there too. Because he said, I want you to understand something. This is the heart of man. And he, he says, a day's coming where I'm not going to have, you're not going to have to have a stone tablet. He says, I'm going to write my blood on this ark. Oh, I think that's bad news. Regulations, it's about you obey me. Are you hearing me? Now, why? He says that the ark represents the heart of man. He says that's all the stuff in there. Why? But he says then there's this cover that goes over it. When he talks about these cherubim and they were these winged creatures, he says that angelic beings are involved in this process. They stand guard over this throne. But this cover is an amazing thing. It's got three different names. They're all the same thing. It's called the mercy seat. I like that. By the way, it's called the mercy seat. It's beyond that thought. It's also called the atonement cover. Watch this. If the cover goes over it and the priest splatters the blood over it, it's the blood covering what's under the cover, what's under the lid, which is all of our stinking attitudes, fearful living, and our regulations and rules, thinking we're going to please God somehow by legalism. And he says, I'm telling you right now, that stuff's all got to be covered by the blood. you got to quit worrying about that baloney. I've got something better for you. Oh, there's a third name. It's called the throne. Jesus said, 
Therefore, brother, cease to talk. Huh? Approach. We have confidence to approach. Let's approach the throne of grace with boldness. I think that's what Second Corinthians points out. This throne of grace. But are you catching the throne? This is so. So what he's telling us is that what was a hidden thing in the in the physical realm, what was untouchable by only the high priest. Jesus opened the way, and in the heavenly realm, this thing that we saw as some kind of an ob- object of worship, it was a gold-covered thing, is actually the throne room in heaven. It is the place where God dwells. It is where Jesus went and was seated at the right hand of the Father. And He says, you and I are invited to a place where God and Jesus Himself sits down as Lord over everything in your life. And I'm telling you, Unless you are willing to let Him seat on the throne of your life and be Lord over it all, He has nothing. He gets it all. I know it's time to go home. I'm sorry. I don't want to go home. I'll finish tomorrow. Yeah, not tomorrow. I will, but I, I think I'll do some more tomorrow night. I think that's all right. Because there's two or three more things I want to cover. Okay, I know that I know that I learned a long time ago the mind can only comprehend what the feet can endure. That's Hezekiah three four. Uh, okay, so here let's just close with this thing. I I, I told you last week. I think one of the greatest failures. Holy Spirit, one I think is one of our greatest failures is that we tell people about Holy Spirit. We tell them about the story of the Holy Spirit, but are we inviting them? Are we inviting them to enter the Holy Spirit? I preached this message in dozens of holiness churches, and I kid you not, I, I couldn't tell you anything different in those churches. I couldn't tell you how many people have come to me and said, no one has ever asked me if I want to be saved. Your holiness is And I think that maybe this thing of we're afraid it won't work. See, here's the deal we can't offer what we've been given. Does that make sense? I'll tell you what I'm talking to you about tonight is my experience of Christ on the rubble. I'm not going to tell you something that isn't real. I'll tell you a point in my life. I can tell you it happened brand new for me about five years ago in a whole new way. It's changed forever. I'll never be the same. Don't want to be the same. But it's things that we have pressed in and we say, I don't want that to be true. I don't want to hold it. I need to be In the New Testament, after Acts chapter 2, in Acts chapter 2, the disciples went and waited for 10 days. But after that, they would go out and they'd say, have you been filled with the Spirit? And they would say, well, no, we know about salvation, we know about Jesus, but we don't know about the Holy Spirit. It's just because they laid hands on them and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. 
reminds me, though, I, I remember the Wesleyan Life thing had a deal maybe last year. The thing about the ways to, to sanctification. And they had the slow way, the fast way, the long way, the short I don't know. There were all kinds of like a map there. And I'm like, all these ways. That's pretty. And, you know, I really liked it. I'm not critical. I liked it because I don't think we put God in the box in how we get there. I'm not real worried about the way I want to know are you hungry for the filling of the Holy Spirit? Do you want God to fill you? You want that in your life. See, tonight, some may be filled with the Holy Spirit right here in the moment. I've seen it happen. There are others who tonight will say, I want it. And I, and I pray to give it to you. And if he does it tonight, I'm not backing off. I'm going to press in. I'm going to press in. I'm going to press in until he fills me. If I have to spend my 10 days in the upper room, I will stay very, very careful that I want to know. Last week, I had to spend the evening with a gentleman and his dear friend, Mike. We sat together for two hours and we talked to each other. He said, You know how much joy I want in life. You know how much joy I want. I want things to fail. I've never felt Thank you. 
promises. You want the anointing that covers, that cleanses from the attitudes and the spirits that are, that are displeasing. If you want a glory to fill your life anew and fresh, you've got to come. Christianity, step out of the box. Guard your steps and approach the Lord.